So tonight we are getting into the main intent or the main goal of this personal letter from Paul to Philemon, which is forgiveness. What's so interesting about this letter being that it is about forgiveness is that the word forgiveness itself does not appear one time in the text. And yet we see throughout that this is the goal, forgiveness and accountability. This is why Paul is writing to Philemon. As we walk through our text this evening, we will look at what forgiveness looks like biblically, and we will see how we are able to forgive in this way from looking at the character of both Philemon and the character of Onesimus because of the work that Christ had done in their lives. We also need to look at this book from a historical and cultural standpoint to truly comprehend the beauty of the reconciliation and the forgiveness that Paul is asking for and that these men should have together. So before we dive into the book itself, we're going to look at some biblical principles that reveal how God defines forgiveness and what that should look like in each and every one of our lives. So you'll see at the top of your paper some biblical principles for forgiveness, and forgiveness defined is a release or a dismissal from something, typically from a penalty. It's an act of the will, and forgiveness is something that no one deserves because it is always from grace and mercy, which none of us deserve. It is a decision to not hold something against someone else. So what does this forgiveness look like biblically? We see, first of all, that God forbids unforgiveness. It is a command to forgive, and we are commanded to not be unforgiving, and we could really just leave it at that. It's a command, so do it. But the Lord has given us so much more through His Word. We see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, You shall not murder. And then if we go to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus giving more of a definition of those things and saying that if you have anger towards someone in your heart, anger or bitterness or hatred, then you have already murdered them. So we see that unforgiveness is forbidden there. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We see the same thing in this chapter. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then later on in verse 13, which could be the basis of the whole letter of Philemon, Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Hate, anger, wrath, malice, vengeance, a lack of forgiveness toward anyone is sin. If we are in Christ, we should obey and we should forgive because we have been commanded to do so. But there's more than that. We see that whoever has offended us has offended God infinitely more. So their offense is ultimately toward Him. So we should really humble ourselves when there are offenses that are made against us. We see this in a parable in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus describing the chasm between the Lord's forgiveness of us and then our forgiveness when others offend us. So in Matthew chapter 18, 
beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is an amount that could never be paid in multiple lifetimes. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is not that much. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we see here the call to humility. Whoever offends us ultimately offends God because all sin is an affront to Him. If our holy, righteous, and perfect God can forgive the sinner, why can't we? We also see that Christians who do not forgive others will not enjoy God's forgiveness. Their fellowship with Him will be hindered. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Now what this is not describing is a loss of salvation. The forgiveness that comes from the work of Christ, the justification, the life we are given, but in our salvation. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. As I said, this is not describing salvation, but we can inhibit our relationship with God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 through 32, it talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. God does not change, but when we are disobedient, then we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we do not enjoy that fellowship and that life that we've been given by God. And when we obey and forgive, we can enjoy that fullness of life and enjoy the forgiveness that we have received from God. Christians who do not forgive other believers will not enjoy fellowship with them. So not only does unforgiveness alter or change or disrupt our fellowship with God, but it also alters and changes our fellowship with one another, with our brothers and sisters. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 23, it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This unforgiveness of our brothers and sisters makes us unfit for worship. And remember, either the offending party or the one who has been offended can be the initiator in this reconciliation. You don't have to wait for someone else to begin this process. You can do so with a brother and sister, whether you have offended them or they have offended you. You should be able to, in love and gentleness, approach them to have that forgiveness between the two of you. By avenging ourselves, we shouldn't have even used this word. I can't even say it. Usurp God's authority. We we want to take His authority for ourselves. We see this in Romans chapter twelve that God is the avenger, and we should leave it all to Him. Romans chapter twelve and verse seventeen. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And in verse 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when we decide to take these things for ourselves and get vengeance or get revenge, we are committing blasphemy. We are looking at God and we are saying, in essence, you are not a perfect and just judge, so I need to take this into my own hands. You can't handle this, so I will. And that's blasphemy. So we should leave it to God for these things and we should forgive. And lastly, forgiveness should be given even if not sought by the offending party. We have two great examples of this. One is a perfect example of this. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus, hanging from the cross, says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Those crucifying him were not asking for his forgiveness. And in Acts chapter 7, we see those who were stoning Stephen to death. He says, Lord, hold this not against them. So we see two demonstrations of what this forgiveness should look like even in the most dire of situations where men were being killed by those who they still wanted to forgive. So Paul knew that Philemon understood what true forgiveness looks like. He received it from God being a believer and he was also taught these things. And so this is why he approaches the situation between Philemon and Onesimus in the way that he does. So, turning back to Philemon, we see the appeal in verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Because Philemon's godly character was evident to Paul and to others, he had no need to be demanded or commanded to do what is right. We saw that last week, reading verses 4-7 through in Philemon, the character that Paul describes here. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective 
for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The transformation of Philemon by the work of Christ was seen by all who knew him. So Paul did not have to command these things. Paul, as an apostle and as the spiritual father of Philemon, the man who brought him to a saving faith through the Lord, could have forced Philemon to do what was right in this situation, and yet he did not. He appealed to something that is greater. To use a position or authority to change the behavior of others is never truly sufficient. When doing this, you can never be sure if the change is merely due to force or due to a genuine desire from them. Parents understand this, and I'm pretty sure everyone in here has been a child, so we understand this. When your children sin or sin against their siblings, and you tell them to say they're sorry, or you tell the one that was offended to forgive them, I'm sorry, you know they don't actually mean it. They just did it because you told them to. So, Paul wants there to be something more here based on the godly character of Philemon and what we will see in Onesimus. John Phillips notes this, that discipline says I have to, duty says I ought to, and desire says I want to. While discipline and duty are important, and there are times that we see in the New Testament that Paul did use his authority to command believers to do certain things, to obey. Here he is seeking something of more value. He desires this to be done from love. The appeal is not to law or to principle, but to love. This is what should motivate each and every one of us to obey God's commands. This will not always be the motivation, but it is what we should strive for. It's what we should desire. We should desire to desire to do it for the right reasons. And when we do not, to still obey because of the life we've been given. Paul wanted Philemon to do what was right based on Philemon's love for God, his love that he should have for Onesimus, and his love that he had for Paul himself. Again, this does not always motivate us, but it should. And we should strive for love to motivate us. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. In his appeal, Paul uses every argument he can in order to stir Philemon's will and conscience to desire what is right. He doesn't do these things by force, but he does use every tool that he can to convince him or to persuade him of these things. We should be willing to do the same exact thing. Appealing to another's conscience to do what is right without commanding them is not sinful as long as we are doing it in order for them to seek to glorify God in obedience. If it's not for selfish gain, we should be appealing to them that they might do these things. So Paul brings up two things here as he is appealing to Philemon for Onesimus. He brings up his age. As an older man, there were not many opportunities left to serve the apostle. Now Paul and Philemon were roughly the same age, so some might think he couldn't really use age in this situation. But because of all of the suffering and persecution that Paul went through, 
he was well beyond his years. He suffered much persecution, and he lists all of that in 2 Corinthians 11. And so there were not very many opportunities left to serve this apostle that the Lord used for the salvation of Philemon, Onesimus, and many, many others. He also brings up his imprisonment. It's hard to turn down a request from a man who is suffering for the sake of Christ. Philemon was unable to free Paul, but he could free Onesimus. This is a request from a man in chains. Paul is rattling his chains here and saying, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm suffering honorably for Him. And so I'm asking that for my sake and for the sake of love, the love you have for me and for the Lord, that you would do these things. And now finally, in verse 10, we reach the purpose of the letter. Who the appeal is for. Onesimus has returned to be reconciled with Philemon. And the man standing in front of Philemon is not the same man that left him. He was transformed and given life from God. So we see in verses 10 through 12 the transformation in the new life of Onesimus. Beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So who was Onesimus? He's only brought up in one other text, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. He was a slave of Philemon that ran away and possibly stole some of his belongings as well. And even if he did not steal some of his belongings, there was still a debt that he owed to Philemon as his master. We'll be digging into that here in the next few weeks, but in verses 18 and 19, this is where we believe that he did take something as he left. Paul says to Philemon, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing from you in the Lord. Oh, excuse me. I, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So, we're going to briefly talk about slavery, because Philemon was a master and Onesimus was his slave. So, slavery was commonplace in 1st century A.D. in the Roman culture. Approximately a third of the Roman population was slaves. This was not the same slavery as the Chattel's slavery in the United States. It was not just man-stealing. People were in slavery due to debt. There were people in slavery that were born into slavery just because of the long period of time that they had slavery in the Roman culture. And some men even chose to be put into slavery. Though it was abused, and in most cases, uh, and under the Roman law, slaves were the property of their masters. Now, there was a sermon that we had that went very in-depth into the biblical view of slavery, and I would encourage everyone to listen to that. And over the next two weeks, as we dig deeper into Philemon, there will be more discussion from Pastor Jeremy and Elder Zach into the biblical view of slavery But tonight I'd like to lay a foundation. So there are two ways to view slavery. It is 
morally wrong in all situations, which would then mean that the Bible is unreliable because it never condemns it outright. Or, because the Bible is the only reliable moral guide, it is not morally wrong in all situations. Again, I would recommend listening to the problem of biblical slavery to gain more on this subject. But in most cases during this time, a slave was actually better off than a free man. They were guaranteed wages, housing, food, and could even receive an inheritance from their master. In fact, in many cases, slaves and masters had a love for one another. Slaves would learn the trades of their masters and hold positions like doctors, musicians, teachers, accountants. Very highly esteemed positions were held by slaves during this time. Some men even, like I said, sold themselves into slavery in order to have a better life. Again, during this period of time in this culture and context. According to Scripture, a slave who was freed spiritually, who was given spiritual life and freedom, should not have expected a physical freedom from their slavery, but should have been obedient to that calling that was placed on their life. Masters were never commanded to free their slaves, but were commanded to treat them as equals, as all men bear the image of God. Civil disobedience or a social revolution would have taken away the message of the gospel and would have certainly led to the slaughter of millions. Millions of slaves. These issues are not resolved by social or political means. They can only be resolved by a spiritual movement. Men transformed by the gospel no longer desire to mistreat or to own other men. Social justice may change laws and the external behaviors of men, but this cannot save anyone. We are not laboring to see societal reformation, but heart regeneration through Christ. This can only be done by the gospel. And so we see here that more importantly than Onesimus being a slave, he was a spiritual son of Paul and a slave of God in Christ, as we all are. The transformation of Onesimus by the work of Christ was evident by his good works. We see in John chapter 15, verse 8, if you would turn with me there. Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And we see because of this transformation in the work that Christ had done by saving Onesimus, that how he now lived was true of what it says in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. What's interesting is that in Philemon, verse 11, Paul says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. The name Onesimus was a common name for slaves, and the name meant useful. So Paul is kind of using a play on words, almost bringing a lightheartedness to this when he says, useful, who was useless to you, is now actually useful in living out what his name actually means because of the work of Christ. He's now fulfilling his name. We see here as well, not just that he was hardworking, but that he was willing and repentant because he was the one that would have presented this letter to Philemon. So, by this point, even before reading this, Philemon probably knew what the letter was about because Onesimus was standing right in front of him. So, we see the repentant heart that Onesimus had. And in verse 12, we see that Paul loved Onesimus in the Lord, and he knew Philemon would love him in this way as well. Paul desired to keep Onesimus with him, but both he and Philemon needed to do what was right. They were both to be examples of what genuine obedience to the Lord looks like, a willing sacrifice for the glory of God and for the good of others. So we see the heart of obedience from both Paul and what he was calling Philemon to do. In verse 13 of Philemon chapter 1. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul set an example for Philemon by setting aside his rights and his wishes in order to do what was right, both according to his calling as a servant of the Lord and according to Roman law, because Onesimus was a runaway slave, so he needed to be returned. It was Philemon's decision as, as to what would be done with his slave. Now, Paul could have presumed that based on Philemon's godly character, that the relationship would be amended. He could have simply sent the letter and said, I'm going to keep Onesimus with me. I I know that you'll agree with this because of who you are. But he wanted them to meet in order that they might be reconciled in person. This was important. He also desired to obey the civil authorities on this matter. How easy could it have been for Paul to not just keep Onesimus, but for Onesimus to simply hide behind this letter, to not go with this letter, to not go to Philemon, um, but to hide behind Paul, hide behind Onesimus. Just Yes, I, I, I'm sorry for what I did, but I'm going to stay behind. And how easy is it for us to, when we desire to ask for forgiveness from our brothers and sisters, can hide behind a screen. Well, I wronged them. It's going to be awkward to talk to them in person, so I'll just send them a text. It's not very genuine. We should be willing to approach those that we have wronged in person, face to face, be willing to face that discomfort, that awkwardness, 
to show a true repentance and to strive for reconciliation and to make sure that everything gets aired out because you can't do that in text. You cannot do that through a phone. The Lord desires our obedience from our own will, not by force or compulsion. We see that that is what Paul wanted. He didn't want him to just do these things because he commanded it. He wanted Philemon to do this because of the life he had been given, the transformation, the forgiveness that he had received that he should now offer to others, no matter what wrong had been done. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66, we see that it is from the will, from the heart, that the Lord desires our obedience, and not simply the actions or doing religion. So in Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is an internal transformation that God gives us. And so it goes on. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. The Lord is describing the Israelites here, and The statements he's making when he says slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, they were doing all of the things that the Lord had commanded them to do. But their heart was not in it. They were just going through the motions. And so, to the Lord, it was an abomination. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, again, the heart that the Lord desires in our obedience to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful. Joyful. He wants us to give from the heart. Fulfilling the commands of the Lord is right and good, but He desires much more than simply external actions. He wants our affections. He wants our desires to be for Him as well. Philippians chapter 2. We see this as well. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, as I said before, there will be times that we are not motivated by this love. But we should be striving to be motivated by that and obey the commands even when we don't have that motivation. Being reminded of what Christ has done in our lives even when we don't feel it. So we see this interaction between Philemon and Onesimus would have been one that we can't quite grasp ourselves. Imagine the fear that Onesimus had to overcome to do this, to go back to Philemon to be reconciled to him. When traveling back to Philemon, he could have been captured by men who their job was to capture runaway slaves. And either they or Philemon could have put him to death. Under Roman law, he could have easily been put to death for the things that he had done. Many slaves were put to death for even lesser things than this. If you looked at your master the wrong way, if the master just decided that they didn't want you anymore, but they didn't want you to live anymore, they had every right to end your life. This is what Onesimus had to be thinking. Again, knowing Philemon was a believer, but that still being a possibility. The fear that he had to overcome. And yet, the Lord gave him the courage to do what was right and to go and seek out this reconciliation and forgiveness with Philemon. We also could imagine the anger and the fear that Philemon himself could have been experiencing or had to overcome. Anger toward this man who had wronged him. We have all been wronged and we know that there is still anger for those who are in Christ when they offend us. So there was anger that he had to overcome in this situation. And again, we don't know the severity of what he took, why he was in that situation as Philemon's slave in the first place. Obviously, he wasn't a great one if he was in the past called useless. But we don't know what he had done to wrong him. There could have also been a fear of what would happen to Philemon's reputation if he did not punish his slave. There could be fear that a rebellion would be incited, that other slaves would see this and decide to rebel. Everyone else would have punished their slave, but Philemon was called to forgive him. While we don't actually know how Philemon responded to this letter, we don't have any other correspondence between him and Paul after this, we can assume based on the character and the transformation that we've seen Paul describe in this letter that he did do what was right. So that leaves us with a few questions this evening. Is there anyone in your life that you have not forgiven? Is there anyone that you need to ask to forgive you? Ask God to reveal either of these things. And ask Him for the strength and the courage to address these things in order to glorify Him in being reconciled and restored 
to a right relationship. Don't hold grudges. Don't hold on to bitterness in any relationship that you have. Do you obey out of compulsion or or coercion? Do you only do what is right because you think you have to? Or do you have a desire to do what is right because you know what God has done in your life? You know who He is and who He has made you. Is it out of the joy and the hope that you have in Christ? Or again, do you at least desire to be motivated by these things and still continue and pray for the strength to walk in obedience even when you don't feel like it? And anyone here tonight that does not know the Lord, have you been transformed by what Jesus Christ has accomplished? God only forgives through Jesus Christ. Have you received forgiveness from God? Have you been made new and given this life? Only when you are given life and given this forgiveness can you obey and forgive in a way that gives God all the glory and to magnify His great name. I'd like to give everyone some time to reflect on these things. To, for the Lord to reveal any hidden sin, any offense that you have caused, or any offense that you have been leaving to fester, that you need to go to someone else to seek out that restoration and reconciliation. I'll give you all time for that, and then I will close this in a word of prayer. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, holy and gracious God, we thank You for Your forgiveness. It is only by the work of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have been given this forgiveness. It is not something anyone can earn. It is not something that we could keep. Lord, we thank You for that accomplished that finished work that Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, I pray that if there are any offenses that have not been addressed, you have revealed those things that my brothers and sisters might be reconciled and be restored to fellowship with one another, that they might glorify you together and give praise to your name. Lord, I pray for the one here tonight that has not received forgiveness from you through Christ. I pray, Lord, that tonight 
they would repent of their sin and beg you for forgiveness and that you would give them life. Lord, I pray that you would give us the desire to obey you from a heart that is filled with hope and with joy because of who you are, what you have done for us, and what you have said you will do through us for your glory. And Lord, again, in the times when we do not have that desire, do not have that emotion, give us the strength and endurance to continue to live a life of obedience for your glory. That we might know and understand these things. And that you might stir us to a godly emotion. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Pray all of these things in the holy, precious, mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.